let me know. You're not in trouble, dude. Hey guys, welcome back to the Field Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and I'm in here with right now with uh, George. And what you just listened to is a uh, the beginning of the Tactical Review Podcast, another podcast. It's been a couple weeks since we did a Tactical Review Podcast, but the entire point of the Tactical Review Podcast is to highlight different things that are going on real world and talk about and discuss those things and see if there's ways that we could extract um you know, better, you know, through lessons learned, better practices or better tactics in addressing the threats that face us today. Uh, unfortunately, what you just heard was the gunfight that was basically uh, exchanged between Sacramento Police Department and Officer um, Tara Sullivan, who was killed, unfortunately, in that situation. She was 26 years old and she was shot uh, by an AR 15. Uh, by a suspect who was inside the house uh, as these officers entered, and she was subsequently she passed away subsequently uh, in a hospital. So, look, one thing I want to make clear to everybody listening to this podcast is I am not criticizing the officers that were involved in this pod or involved in this uh, particular situation. What I am doing is outlining. Uh, tactics and techniques and procedures that I've learned through experience, that George has learned through experience in combat, facing similar situations. The situation that you just heard, which was um, approximately five officers entering on a domestic with guns drawn uh, and and an AR-15 shooting back at them, I've encountered at least, and this is no exaggeration, 15 to 20 times in my military career and in war, meaning being inside of a house in the confines of structures and buildings um, and then having a gunfight uh, kick off. And so I want to make it very clear that the perspective that I'm coming at uh, this situation with is, a, is one from experience. And so I don't want people to think that I'm criticizing these officers because one, <coughs> and this is uh and this is commonplace in the United States of America, law enforcement officers are underpaid and undertrained. They don't have uh, the luxury of special operations to be trained in specific tactics in combating threats of this caliber. Um, you know, I always say it all the time, like, you know, we want to demilitarize law enforcement officers and their equipment and their capabilities, but the fact is, in certain instances, in certain places in this nation, we're sending them to war. We're sending young men and women coming out of college, sometimes coming out of high school, giving them 15 weeks of academy, a gun and a badge, and then sending them off to war. And then we expect 
the result of their their decisions of their tactics to reflect that and it's it's obviously there's obviously an imbalance there so let's first off uh george you got you have the uh the story pulled up but let's talk about some of the details of the story of the facts as we know it one the man who's charged his name is adele ramos 45 right now he's facing murder attempted murder and illegally fire uh discharging a firearm um, in connection with a shooting that killed uh, Officer O'Sullivan. Um, it says, Ramos, 45, also faces special circumstance allegations that could make him eligible for the death penalty, according to a criminal complaint filed in Sacramento Qu- County Superior Court. Authorities say Ramos ambushed O'Sullivan, 26, and several other officers who responded to a d- domestic disturbance call at a house at 5.40 p.m. Wednesday in the 200 block of Redwood Avenue. Authorities had been called to stand watch as a woman gathered her belongings. So there was another person who was obviously involved in this and and left the home. Officers first encountered the woman shortly before noon when they were summoned to a disturbance between her and a man, according to Sacramento police. O'Sullivan had been at the house for 30 minutes when she was gunned down, meaning they were on site facilitating this packing of equipment when she was gunned down. A moment that was captured in chilling footage from body camera, which is what you heard in the beginning of this podcast. Ramos had the front door barricaded when law enforcement arrived at the house, so they went to the backyard and approached a detached garage. There's actually a video of this, which we'll post the link where you could see this. And um, they approached inside the house with guns drawn. Um, you could, it, the officer calls out to Ramos by name as he approaches the door of the garage with his gun drawn. Police department... If you're in here, let me know. You're not in any trouble, dude, is what he said. Seconds later, Ramos unleashed a barrage of gunfire behind the officers using a high-powered rifle. Authorities say striking O'Sullivan several times, one of her wounds was not survivable. The cameras pointed to the ground as the officers duck and run for cover behind a boat. Someone yells, you okay, you okay. This is a high-powered rifle. Get out of here, the officer says. We got one down, officer down. Officer down. He continues ducking behind the vessel, picking up only occasionally to determine the shooter's location. Yeah, he's still shooting. He's, he's stalking. He whispers in the radio. He's changing clips, which you could hear in that video uh, that we post in, this, uh, in the comments. Police said Ramos continued firing, preventing others from coming into O'Sullivan's aid as she, as she lay wounded in the yard. Eventually, authorities drove an armored vehicle into the area to rescue her amid continued gunfire. One officer returned fire but, not, but did not strike Ramos. As officers were backing out of the yard, the armored vehicle broke down and several, several of O'Sullivan's colleagues had to carry her to a police car to take her to the hospital. Ramos fired sporadically at officers for more than four hours before police persuaded him to surrender before 2 a.m. Four hours. They were in an exchange of gunfire um, or sporadically he was uh, shooting at the officers for more than four hours until 2 a.m., where he uh, surrendered. Oh, that drives me mad. Officials later found a shotgun, a handgun, and two AR-15-style rifles assembled from parts to create weapons that are illegal in California. Strategically placed throughout the house, they also found casings scattered throughout the property. Ramos has a criminal court record in Sacramento dating back to 95 for domestic violence, DUI, petty theft, and battery. 
A warrant for Ramos' arrest was issued nine days before the shooting after he failed to appear in court. He is being held in, uh, in jail right now. So um, let's talk about what we, what we know and, and what we think we could uh, potentially improve. Look, there's, there's a tactic. There's a, a specific tactic, tactic that we utilize in special operations and also the infantry. George is familiar with this. Uh, the Rangers use it. Um, military um, uses it as a basic battle drill. Understand that battle drills are taught at the lowest level, meaning when I was 17 years old in infantry advanced individual training at Fort Benning, Georgia, I learned these simple battle drills. One of the battle drills that I learned is react to contact, right? In, in ways in which you react to combat, uh, in ways in which you react to direct fire versus indirect fire. Part of the, one of the immediate action drills and the way it's instilled into young men and women is it becomes an instinct, meaning instinctively you do something as a parameter to not overthink it. That's what, that's what an immediate action drill is, i.e., like you do something based off of gunshots, and that is an automatic response to cut out the time. You, you did this with the Ranger Regiment, correct, George? Uh, yeah, on, the, on multiple occasions, all the training events, and it's just a drill. You drill it, drill it, drill it. Now, you, know? you weren't an infantry guy, but when you went and you were assigned with Ranger Battalion, they I'm assuming they trained you up in this. Yes, they did. Every... Um, Everything we did with them, we were always integrated into their training so that just in case they came down to it, I, I was able to jump in and do my part. Yep. So here, let me lay out a couple of things. One, you know, we train law enforcement all across the country, and it's important for us to teach uh, tactics, right, in posturing and behavior and immediate action and in worst-case scenarios. Now, a lot of things that take place with officers – especially in patrol. I'm talking about people that are more inexperienced. Understand that these men and women get on average 15 weeks of law enforcement training. Two of those weeks are with live firearms. Imagine you have somebody like, I don't know, an officer who comes out of high school and they're hired for the local sheriff's department, local police department, and they have never touched a firearm before. Well, they're taking a firearm and they're defending lives and expected to respond, react accordingly, and make good decisions to save lives with two weeks of firearm training. And number one, that's obviously institutionally a bad protocol, especially when you have expectations and liability um, and outside of liability that you expect from officers to, to uh, react under stress and under fire. It's hard to replicate stress. So I will tell you one of the things that, that uh, took place that I noticed on the initial um, barrage of gunfire. As the officer entered, he announced, which is what you do. That's part, legally, that's part of the uh, job. You have to announce, especially when you're entering in somebody's domicile, you have to announce that you're a police officer, and it's good protocol. It's one for identifying verbally where people are located, right? It's better, it's... it's uh, it's also good for situational awareness. So when he announced, he came inside the house, he announced, and he said, hey, trying to reduce or mitigate the situation, he said, hey, dude, we're not, you know, there's, not, there's nothing wrong here. Like, um, everything's going to be okay. I'm assuming at that point they knew he maybe had a warrant. Um, and 
As he entered the back way after he barricaded the front of the door, gunshots rang out. In that first barrage of gun, uh, gunfire, Officer Tara O'Sullivan was hit. Um, now, it says from the, the news report that one of the rounds critically wounded her but was not survivable. Uh, what I didn't read in the facts is that it took her 45 minutes is, is how long it took for them to recover her, utilizing, I'm assuming, a SWAT vehicle as an armored vehicle before they pulled her away and were able to take her to a hospital where she later expired, where she later passed away. Okay, so a few of the things I'm going to talk about are, are, I want you to understand, are basic. And the, one, of the, one of the issues that we face as a company in training law enforcement, you know, Raul Martinez is one of our guys, uh, Mason, gunfu fighter, is one of our guys, and they're law enforcement officers. One's a full-time SWAT guy, one is a, a former uh, police undercover Officers don't aren't taught basic military style tactics, basic military style tactics, and that's a problem. Um, one of the problems is, uh, oh, it says, oh, just let me just break in here real quick uh, on the on Instagram. We're on a live feed, and I got something from uh, one of the guys that says she died pretty much instantly. One of the shots entered the armpit and tumbled through her heart. Um, that's not what's reported. Uh, I, I mean, I'm just going off based off the facts that I saw through media and through reports, uh, including police officers from Sacramento who uh, messaged me and told me that she later died in the hospital. So she didn't die immediately. So if that's something that was said, uh, please cite the source because I like to track that down. Um, outside of that, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off of the uh, the facts as I know it, which was she was shot, wounded. And maybe the, maybe it was a wound that was fatal um, that they determined later. But at, at the time that she was wounded, you obviously assume that she's wounded, that she's not dead. Uh, honestly, for us in special operations, that doesn't change much on the initial reactive contact. The reason I'm harping on this uh, whole tactical thing is there's a a basic. Uh, look, you go through basic training. That's eight weeks, right? You learn the baseline. In academies, you learn the basic, uh, the basics as well. You learn protocol, even customs and courtesies, uh, uniforms, uh, uniform and ap- uh, appearance. You even learn uh, the laws, um, and then you start learning tactics. But tactics is not a very broad element um, inside the institution. It's it's typically part of the curriculum, but you don't holistically focus on that because it's not a military organization. It's not a military unit. But a lot of the things that they don't train on is the basics of military tactics, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. You don't have to create protocol and create tactics in law enforcement agencies across the United States if you focus on principles of military tactics that work and translate, i.e. Field Manual 7-8, which is the Army's and a lot of other sister units use it, basic infantry tactics, including reactive contact, uh, immediate action drills, uh, ambush. So not only is it justified for them to to understand the basics of tactics, but even more so in understanding the enemy's tactics, when you learn those tactics by default, you're understanding how bad guys are potentially thinking, right? Right. Um, if they're trying to flank on you, like, what do you think? 
if you have no experience in any tactics whatsoever, you've never even thought about it, right? You've never trained it because you only get a couple of weeks of it in the, in the schoolhouse and you haven't been on the streets long enough, long enough uh, to, to learn it from experience. At least you have a baseline understanding through tactics and that's important. So let me talk about one tactic as it relates to this situation. React to contact. George, what, what is a typical react to contact that you've experienced just in war and combat that you've seen? Like the, the reality of it. Uh, like if somebody starts shooting at you guys, how do you react? Uh, well, first you return fire and then seat cover. I mean, that's just basic um, one-on-one, you know? It's just you want to return fire to make sure they duck their heads down so you can get to safer, you know, a safer spot to either, you know, maneuver or call for fire or whatever it is that, you know, whatever your SOP is. So, I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean, just return fire. Yeah, so the the basic SOP in, in uh, an immediate action is you immediately suppress, sometimes orient uh, your, your bullets in the direction and distance, um, but sometimes you don't have that uh, availability. Sometimes if you're in, you know, you're expecting contact, and you're reacting to contact, sometimes you're, it's just suppression, which means it's not tactically putting rounds on bad guys. It's putting rounds in their general direction. You're also identifying, obviously, um, in the time in which you're maneuvering to cover or concealment. You know, cover protects you from bullets, fragmentation, etc., cetera, uh, and offers some form of ballistic coverage. Concealment doesn't. So concealment could be a bush. Cover could be the confines of the concrete carport that they hid in right next to the boat that they were standing next to. So suppressing the enemy while breaking contact or maneuvering your physical body in what we called an, uh, um, an IMT, an individual moving technique, which is called a three to five second rush. Right, That's the general rule of thumb for the infantry based on uh, some older tactics that were drawn out from the Vietnam, even World War II, where... You, you even say it to yourself, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. That's about three seconds. And so you're maneuvering and uh, you're at the same time trying to suppress the bad guy. So during that event, what you're doing is establishing a base of fire. And, and this is tactically speaking. You're establishing a base of fire and you're identifying the direction and distance. Based on everything I saw from the initial contact to breaking contact, off the X, I think the officer did a good job from what I could see from his camera. Meaning, he broke contact but had the situational awareness to be able to relay communication and information during the breaking in contact. Now, he, did, he even noted that an officer was shot. Uh, an officer was wounded and an officer down. He called fire and um, uh, medical services to react. And he gave, I believe, the disposition of the bad guys which he said, hey, there's a guy with an, a, uh, an AR Type 15 or a high-powered rifle was the words he might have used. So that, that seemed to go very well. And so here's another tactic that I want you to understand that is important, that I learned the hard way in Iraq. You know, I have five different combat rotations to Iraq, all as a special operations guy. One of my, I think it was like in my second uh, rotation in Iraq, we conducted an operation on a terrorist safe house in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. And foreign fighters were coming to this house, and they were using it as a base of operation. 
So when we landed, we expected to land surreptitiously away from the objective and walk in surreptitiously or silently where they wouldn't hear us. Well, we were compromised. And we knew we were compromised. I mean, we killed a whole checkpoint full of bad guys when we landed two to three kilometers away from the objective. And so, long story short, we wound up killing 12, 13 terrorists. Uh, we lost our dog, and it was a, it was a, a, a huge lesson learned uh, because of our failure to retain containment, to maintain containment. In fact, I remember... His name's CK, and not a lot of guys will know that name, but if you know Special Operations, he's a legend in our community. He critiqued us when we got back. He said his, he was a sergeant major, command sergeant major, and he said, listen, you guys should have held containment, which meant when we surrounded the structure, we had the advantage because we had our guns in the fight. When you have a gun in the fight and you have the, the house or the objective contained, you have the advantage because you could identify in your field of view the bad guys and then address the bad guys. When you give up containment, you are giving up visual, visual situational awareness of exactly where the bad guys are and putting yourself at a huge disadvantage. Now, what I will tell you is in the onslaught of a gunfight, it's acceptable for you to break contact and maneuver your, your physical body in order to get a more advantageous position. But at some point, you need to hold the ground that you're on to be able to sustain the integrity of that containment so, you can't, so the bad guy can't maneuver. I always tell officers, and this is, this is coming from several examples, even personal examples, that when the bad guy goes dynamic, or you go dynamic, you stay dynamic. What does dynamic mean? It means when you physically start to maneuver your body, right? You're physically maneuvering your body in and around the objective, hunting for the bad guy. It is rare that you need to stay in one position and not maneuver because you are, unless you have the advantage in covering concealment and fortifying a solid position, meaning. If I go into a house with a gun and a suspect shoots at me, if I'm pushed back into the back of that room, into the closet, I might have the advantage by pying off that closet room and pointing my gun at the threshold of that door, knowing that he's potentially going to present himself and I can engage him. That's the rare exception. Outside of that, you would want to maneuver your body and continue to move so as not to be outmaneuvered or outflanked. Because when a bad guy goes dynamic and he's moving and you're focused and sucked up into one position, you don't, it's impossible, number one, for you to cover everything. And then you're sucked into one narrow field of focus, i.e., in this situation, because I saw it on the guy's camera, his radio, his gun, his feet. I mean, he was, he was looking, um, his gun was pointed at the ground. So that's a good indicator for me that he's not tuned in to where potentially the bad guy would come from, thinking that he might just stand static. Well, we can't do that. We have to assume, especially after contact, the initial contact, that the bad guy is going to fire and maneuver because that's the advantage. The, advantage. the advantage for the bad guy 
is either fire and maneuver or fortify a position and take casualties, as many as possible. So when he gave up that doorway and then he ran into the carport, he should have set a fortified position with his gun. He had a SIG with his finger on the trigger. He had nerves going. I believe he even had it. This correct me if I'm wrong. You guys could look it up. He might have even had it cocked. But he had the gun pointed at the ground. And what I tell people is, if you have the gun pointed at the ground or pointed up in the air or pointed anywhere but the direction of where your eyes identify a threat, you're dead. The only thing you're going to see is you're going to witness yourself being shot in the face by a bad guy. Because a bad guy comes around the corner with an AR-15 pointed at your face, you have two-tenths of a second to live, which is the time that he visually recognizes you as a threat and he pulls the trigger, two-tenths of a second. So if your gun is pointed at the ground, you don't have enough time to lift your gun even to break a shot to save your life. So here is a lesson learned. When you have containment and you give it up because you're breaking contact, you have to either gain containment right, or give it up containment, meaning completely break contact or hold and contain the ground, the advantage. Now, I've been in that situation. Look, I've been 10 feet from bad guys across a berm that I was throwing grenades on the others, not even a berm. A berm is, would, would indicate that it, it had, um, as an obstacle, it was vertical. We're talking about a small hill, a small hill that was probably uh, seven foot high that I was laying on the other side while I was throwing grenades over the berm with another guy while bad guys were on the other side and shooting at us and shooting at each other. Now, it was very hard, even for me, with the advantage of night vision and an infrared laser to stand my ground, to hold my gun in that field of fire, field of view, and, and sustain the security or the momentum or the uh, integrity of that um, containment that I had. It was very difficult to do that. But what you give up is going to, um, you're going to pay uh, the sacrifice for that. Another thing that needs to be noted Look, when a bad guy kills or injures a good guy, part of our firing and maneuvering is to, one, insulate or protect and shield the person that was wounded. Meaning, if I have a gun and the gunfire is in the vicinity of me, I have the tactical patience, and that's measured in milliseconds, to understand that I am not the target of these bullets. And the bad guy doesn't see me. To hold that barrel in the fight, oriented at the direction uh, of where I believe the bad guy is, maybe I'm holding it at the edge of the wall where I think he's going to break around the corner, but not giving up that ground, putting that barrel in the fight, and then either suppressing the bad guy while somebody fire maneuvers to the good guy, or myself shielding the good guy, putting my barrel, myself, my body in between the bad guy and himself. I will tell you, because of experience, it is rare that I've ever seen an instance where we've taken a casualty and we broke contact off the X and not fought. Um, Because here's the thing. In the infantry and special operations, you're taught security is the number one priority, and that's true. 
If you take a casualty, you have to re- sustain the gunfight. The number one priority is um, getting fire superiority. That is true. But with that being said, that doesn't mean you can't suppress, contain, and shoot back while you're protecting the good guys. Look, this isn't criticism because I train law enforcement. They're not trained to do this. Raul just mentioned it here on IG. No law enforcement agencies in their basic academies teach any kind of battle drills at this level. Somebody mentioned on my post on Phil Craft Survival, they said, um, they said it's more complex than that. It's complicated. Um, the reality is it's not complicated at all. I mean, George, when you when you were a PSYOPs guy, and in, in your PSYOPs training, I imagine you guys did small unit tactics, correct? Yes, we did. Was that a basic, uh, uh, was that part of your basic training in AIT, or was it when you were integrated with special operations? Oh, it was part of, you know, basic training, AIT, because you had your FTXs, you had your field problems. So you had to go through all these scenarios, and every single time we did any training, we had uh, reactive contact, break contact, whatever whatever the battle drills are. I don't know them by heart, but some we, we've always done it, no matter what training it was. Yeah. It's isolating small unit tactics. And you know, the question was, how do we change that, Mike? And look, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you, it, it, culturally, it, it's difficult to change a complacent institution, right? More and more agencies because of politics. I mean, you have... Um, chiefs of police and sheriffs, not in not all cases, because I know great uh, sheriffs, Mark Lamb in Pinal County, good friend of ours, and he's not like this. But you have politicians in charge of tactical units, SOPs and operations, and that's a that's a problem. So let's get back to the the situation. So what what's the answer? Well, the answer is when you have containment and you have the advantage of keeping guns in the fight, you don't give that up. You don't break contact off the X. And then, and then see, look, if we break contact in an offensive operation, we break contact to flank and maneuver, right? That's the advantage. So let me get on my high horse here and tell you what I would have done because, you know, I don't want to be speculative. I'll just tell you what, what the fuck I would have done or what I would have did. I would have broke contact off the X. What he did was right. I would have called and announced and then, tried my best to flank the position of the bad guy. They went through a side door in the carport where he had his boat. There was other windows and other opportunities. Deception is a part of the flanking and maneuver that we do in basic small unit tactics. I.e., we make contact with the enemy. We break contact. The enemy thinks we're breaking contact. So they either hold static or they try to maneuver. Either way, they're at a disadvantage because they don't know where we're located. As we break contact, I would have ran around the back and I would have used deception. I either would have crashed, right, through the windows. If I had flashbangs, obviously, I would use disorienting devices. But if I didn't have that, I would have thought outside the the box and used rocks, use concrete, use a damn trash can and throw it through the back of the window. Anything to take... um, that guy's focus off of the direction and the narrow field of focus he had on that officer. Because uh, what I didn't mention is officers tried to recover her, uh, Officer Tara O'Sullivan, while she was wounded. And I believe it was the front yard, tried to recover her. 
but they couldn't get to her because he kept shooting in that direction. Now, here's, here's what I want you to understand. If these officers knew that he was alone, and I believe he was, and I might, I might have this wrong, but imagine that he was, you know, versus having a hostage or somebody that was co-located with him, they could have obviously suppressed and shot rounds into that room. When you're taking 3,000 feet per second, .223 rounds through the wall at that high muzzle velocity, when you have a pistol that's nine millimeters in diameter going 800 feet per second, uh, 900 feet per second, then you are obviously at a disadvantage. But suppression does a lot of things, not just tactically, but psychologically. So if I'm shooting back, that person knows they're fending or fighting for their life. It might make them get more stressed out and narrow their field of focus while you fire a maneuver, while you go through the back door, the back gate, the back window, and use the deception or the flanking maneuver um, as a element um, in your tactics to divert their attention away from the casualty. Or I would have ran to the casualty. And look, this isn't hero tactics. This isn't comp. If you ask any infantryman, any 11 Bravo in the 75th Ranger Regiment, this exact question, they would answer it the same. So this is not bravado. I want you to understand that. This is in a field manual. In basic small unit tactics and special operations, the regular infantry and the Marines and the U.S. Army. When you fire maneuver, the general practice is having a support by fire position that's static. That person is static and is able to provide cover using bullets in order to suppress the bad guy or keep their head down while you can maneuver. That could have been done as well. Any tactics could have been done outside of what I think were wrong tactics when they went around. I mean, the officers were communicating to themselves. And they were saying that, hey, the guy's got a high-power rifle. The officer with the body cam even announced that the guy was checking his magazine or changing his magazine. You heard that, right, George? Mm -hmm. He said that. Was that the exact words? He said, he said um, oh, I hear him changing magazines. Again, an opportunity where there's a lull in fire. Your gun in the dirt staring at the ground, no matter how much stress you have, no matter how much you, you want to justify your actions, isn't the, wrong, isn't the right tactic. I'm not saying your decisions were wrong because nobody could put yourself, themselves in your shoes under that level of stress. But what I'm saying is your tactics were wrong. Your gun should have been in the fight. You should have been communicating to officers and coming up with a plan to not only destroy the bad guy who, was, who just shot your partner or your, or your friend, but figure out a way tactically, advantageously to do it together, right? They were inside the carport and they were talking each other out of going into that situation. Look, if you're in law enforcement and you haven't accepted that your life is on the line, then get the fuck out of the uniform and go find another job. If you're in law enforcement and you're not willing to put your life on the line, hang up the uniform and get a fucking another job. Because the one percenters that I train and that I and then I operate with, that I've that I've been on uh, ride-alongs that I that are some of my best friends in the world, are the guys and the gals who will pick up the gun 
and run into a gunfight to save their own. I heard the press comments. It was a 37-minute rant about policy, politics, and justification. In my mind, in my mind, this is coming from Mike Glover, in my mind, I would never in a fucking million years leave a friend, a partner, another person in uniform against a dude with an AR-15 to die in the grass in the middle of some shithole. It never happened. And, and I could tell that speaking on 99.9% of all my peers that that would never happen. Now, do I think those officers are to blame for that? No, I don't. You know why? Because they're not bred that way. Officers are, are, some officers are bred that way. I train them. They follow us. But some officers, the, the majority of police officers aren't trained that way. They want a job. They're looking as a stepping stone. They don't know what the fuck they're getting into. They sign up. They serve. And they're not willing to make the sacrifices that are needed when shit hits the fan. Yeah, it's cool to hit a flat range. It's cool to get trained in, in uh, the academy. But when, when it comes to the realities of the war that you will face, no one can prepare you for that outside of yourself, right? It's, it's on you to get that training. It's on you to step up to the plate. It's on you to be courageous in your own skin um, to make that sacrifice. And I don't think it's their fault because I think it's the institution's fault. I don't think it's the fault of those officers who weren't trained, who are shit on, who aren't giving the right, given the right tools. And let me make this very clear again by stating it out loud. The tactics, the bravado, and the courage that I'm talking about is the standard operating procedure for the basics and battle drills in the U.S. military. The basics. So when people have a beef with the militarization of units, of uh, organizations, uh, specifically first responders, I have a problem with that uh, argument. Because if you mean we don't want them to wear camouflage, and if you mean you don't want them uh, to go around um, policing uh, people outside of the laws, you know, based on military identification of, of uh, you know, outline rules of engagement, then I understand that. But when it comes to tactics, training, even equipment, officers on the streets are at a huge disadvantage. How many of those officers had AR-15s in their cars? How many of those officers, when responding to a domestic on a guy who, has, who is a violent offender, who has a warrant, why would they not be able to respond to that domestic call with an AR-15? Because maybe if they had an AR-15 instead of that SIG-226 inside their waistband, they could have had the advantage. Maybe instead of the garbage armor that these officers are being issued, if they had the right armor right in place, uh, the level three with the soft and the, and, the, uh, and the plate, the sappy plate, could, could protect them. Um, look, I understand there's complexities in the politics around the institutions, but not in the tactics. You can't convince me of that, and I won't be convinced. I won't be, be convinced of those tactics. I do think it's unfortunate, obviously, that Tara Sullivan had to lose her life. I think it's the first time in 20 years that a Sacramento police officer has been killed. I want these institutions to ask themselves this question. 
all the policy changes you're going to make now, right now, because an officer was killed, all the passion, all the empowerment, all the motivation you have right now because Officer O'Sullivan was killed, why didn't you have that the day before Officer O'Sullivan was killed? Why didn't you have that passion? Why? Because you got complacent because you got bored? All the policymakers, all the administrators, um, the chiefs, the sheriffs, um, the team leaders, where, where is your uh, passion now? Everybody, I, I've seen entire institutions change because of one shooting. One person lost their life, and now we want to think about considerations, tactical considerations. Hey, maybe we should have AR-15s inside of our uh, vehicles. Oh, in Hollywood, two dudes with AK-47s go berserk, get hopped up on drugs and shoot up their community, injure 16 officers, and now we want to put AR-15s inside of police cars because um, the police officers had to go into gun stores to get guns to counter and fight the bad guys. But now we don't want to set our officers up for success now. And I'm not just talking about equipment. I'm talking about training. I'm talking about specifically the way these guys and gals are trained. I see it all the time. Look, when officers come to our, shoot, our uh, training, whether it's free, whether it's paid, pistol, carbine, whatever it may be, do I think they're prepared? 90% of them aren't prepared. They don't have, they're not physically prepared. They're not mentally prepared. They don't know how to um, utilize their, their firearm the proper way, and they're not trained adequately. Good for them for showing up, but they're not prepared. And they're, they're the top 10%. Imagine what the 90%ers look like. And you know. You know what they look like. Oh. Look, the, the solution here is we as Americans have a responsibility to our first responders outside of their bureaucratic institutions. We have a, we have a, a responsibility. I have already offered up that Phil Craft and our instructors will go to these training uh, locations. If you have a range or a facility, DM us or contact us at training at philcraftsurvival.com. We will come this year to your range and train you for free. We'll train you in small unit tactics. We'll train you how to recover an officer. We'll train you in, in um, uh, firearms and teach you outside of your dumb institutions that are teaching you bad habits, the realities that you will face with people with guns. How, how, how long has it took? Look, the entire GWAT, we learned this, these, these lessons learned. How many guys and gals had to die for these lessons learned to be, to, to be extracted? A decade, over a decade. And now we have all these lessons learned sitting sitting at our disposal, and we don't leverage it. It's the same issues that Vietnam veterans had coming out of Vietnam where they understood the tactics of the enemy in the worst-case scenario. But what did we do? We shunned them. They're the ones who stood up the damn um, SWAT teams that, that were able to respond and react to the threats that we deal with today. Hit us up on social media, on training at fieldcraftsurvival.com, and we will come and train you guys for free. That's the least that we could, we could do. And I encourage every tactical instructor here listening to this to partition a part of your business plan to do that for first responders because they need the fucking training. 
If I'm sitting here safely in my my business doing a podcast, it means I'm here safely um, able to do this because some first responders out there risking their lives, and we that's what we owe to our officers, our firefighters, our paramedics and EMTs, our our even our dispatchers at a minimum to do for them, um, since the institution won't do uh, do it for them. Institutions suck. You, you've seen – talk about SOCAF, George. I mean, we dealt with the institution that was second-guessing what we were doing on the ground at the highest level. Yeah, it was it was very frustrating because it was all about risk, um, you know, the risk. Too much risk, too much risk. We're not going to put you guys in this scenario. We're not going to let you do this. We're not going to let you do that. So it got real frustrating when we had a plan, a detailed plan, with everything that we need. We covered every base and still got denied still got denied and we kept and they kept telling us keep putting it in keep pushing it keep pushing it you'll it will get approved it never did it's just everyone's risk adverse no one wants to get in a situation where you know someone gets killed or someone gets hurt or we lose equipment it's just to the point it's like well then why do i get paid why do you send me here why you know why am I? Why are you? Why is the government spending so much money on me for this training um, to kit me out to you know? And and you put me in these environments to where you trust me enough to fly from you know Germany to Libya by myself. You know, have to link up with somebody on the ground that I have no clue who it is, and then get to like where I need to stay. And you're telling me I can't go on a mission with like heavily armed and like. We had a squad, you know, we had, we were, we had everything we needed and you deny us to go on this like recon. It was even, a, it wasn't even a, a hit. It was, we're going to travel down here and check out stuff like a route recon and still got denied. It was just, then why are we doing CT? Like, why am I doing counterterrorism? Like, why am I supporting it when we're not going to be able to do anything? Like, you know, you have to give us something. You got to start somewhere. And just that, just the. The risk adverse. It's just, uh, it's just pathetic. I mean, I'm sorry. I just, uh, I signed up for a reason. That was to, you know, do stuff. And you're not allowing me to do stuff. Come on. Well, that's part of the problem that I see in these institutions, right? These officers are motivated. A lot of them are. They want to hit the streets and they want to serve and they want to protect. They want to do their job. And and the the fear um, for the officers and the and the the biggest threat is how they are being second-guessed and second-guessing themselves with their actions in the field. And that's what it comes down to, a risk issue, right? It's like, hey, what am I willing to risk? What am I willing to do to save life? I saw a, a shooting that, that took place in Newark, New Jersey. Newark's in New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. Newark, New Jersey, where an officer came up to uh, two suspects during a traffic stop and uh, they were acting like they were going to drive away, and they got really freaked out. One of them had a gun, and they drove off, and they got into a pursuit. Well, during the pursuit, an officer shot one of the bad guys in the face, killed him, wounded the passenger. He's up for manslaughter charges. And so, I mean, just think about this. You have two guys who decide to run from the police. One of them has a gun. They're on the streets of Newark, a city, an inner city, driving at high speeds, threatening the, threatening the lives of civilians, 
The officer's jobs are to start, stop them. One officer who, based on his, his perception, looking through his own eyes, identifies a threat, an imminent threat, an immediate threat, and he shoots and kills the driver who's armed. And he's up for charges on manslaughter. So, so how do officers whose jobs are to protect you and me and then defend their own lives that are being charged with manslaughter and murder, how do they do their jobs? How do they do their jobs? I mean, you, you, we don't pay them enough. We give them the, the highest burden of liability and push them into in doorways to fight in the worst situations in the world in combat, in mental stress, gunfights, everything, and then we expect good outcomes. You're not going to get good outcomes. Um, so this 22-year-old dude, Brian Isaac Clyde, he was a PFC in the, in the Army, decides at 8.40 a.m. that he was going to kid up. He got tactical gear, a large rifle, magazines, and started exchanging gunfire in Dallas, Texas, outside the uh, Earl Cabell Federal Building. On Mon- it was a Monday morning in, in downtown Dallas. You know, at the time, there was 300 employees, uh, federal employees that were inside the building when the suspect, he opened fired. One of, the, uh, one of them suffered minor injuries while she was taking cover from the shooting. Um, but the officers that were in that situation responded accordingly and gunned the dude down in the streets before he even had the chance to uh, enter that building. So he had a plan. He started maneuvering on the building. He had bad tactics. Oh, right. he he just looked a mess. I mean, let's just by looks, he just he he didn't have his shit together. First of all, he looked scared in that picture. Maybe in, a, in that moment in time, but he just looked. He wasn't prepared. No, not at all. And you know, in the analysis, in the analysis of understanding tactics, we have to understand the enemy as well as the uh, uh, the good guys and what the what they're doing. This guy, uh, he had an AR-15. I believe he had a 90 rounder. What's what are those? What is the long surefire mags? It's uh, oh, not, it, it's not dual stacked. I think it's a ninety. Ninety or sixty, I think. Yeah, it's a ninety or sixty. Yeah. I think you're right. It might be a sixty. But anyways, it's an extended uh, Magpul mag. He had he had magazines. He had he even looked like he had a marked, um, not particularly labeled, um, but he had them set up. He even had them oriented in the right direction. I paid attention to those details. Like, hey, do you have it oriented with the bullets forward so when you grab it with a beer can reverse grip and you pull it up to put in uh, a magazine, is it oriented in the right direction uh, to optimize um, uh, the slide lock or tactical reload? And it was set up properly. And, you know, he had a ski mask on. He had his AR-15. The AR-15 had an optic on it, but it wasn't um, anything in particular about it that I noticed um, that set him apart. Um, I believe it was like a 16-inch barrel. It looked like a full-size barrel, a standard break. Um, he had some. He had like an IFAT carrier on. The, the armor was 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 really crappy. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of the thinking is maybe this dude did it suicide by cop. Maybe he intended to get gunned down. But what the officers did right is they started flanking and maneuvering on him, and they had a plan. Even if the plan was prescribed, you know, even if the plan was talked about and communicated in advance and then they had the rehearsal and then they just executed the rehearsal, 
that's better than nothing. Even if it was just hasty, like, hey, you shoot down, cover, and then I'll flank. Whatever it may be, firing and maneuvering and uh, and and battle drills and tactics and small unit tactics is important uh, for survival, especially in a gunfight. Uh, I believe they sought um, a position on the second floor and started shooting down. Uh, but yeah, you know, as indicated, he didn't have plates in his carrier, uh, but he had a carrier with a with a uh, with a rig set up, a belt, and had everything tricked out and rigged out. Um, but he paid with his life because he got gunned down. And you know, when you when you're looking at um, these specific tactics, pay attention to bad guys. Look, bad guys, whether it's criminal shitheads in a, in a house shooting and a domestic call, or guys outside um, who are outside in, in an urban environment, um, you know, suicide by cop. You have to pay attention to these tactics because what they do is shape your behavior and your training. I want to be prepared for whatever any shithead is doing in the United States of America. Some bad guy's watching Instagram and he's and he's getting tactics off the IG and then he's going to implement them and then the bad guys uh, win or or uh, good guys lose. I want to know what those TTPs are. I want to know what those tactics are. What I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to sign off on my live feed. I appreciate all you guys on the live feed. I'm going to go over to our Q&A and answer off of our story. Um, answer off our story, any tactical questions that people have for the tactical review. Um, before I do that, um, you want to get to our sponsors? Yeah, let's do that. Thanks, guys, for tuning in on IG. I'm going to save this, guys, if you guys want to tune in. The second part of this you guys will hear on the Phil Grass Survival Podcast. That's going to be up tomorrow. Thanks, guys, for tuning in. So our uh, first sponsor we have is uh, Killcliffe. Killcliffe is an energy drink that is probably one of the more healthier energy drinks out there. It's packed full of vitamins, uh, your electrolytes, things like that. They have three versions of it. They have the Ignite, which is basically your uh, pre-workout. So it's going to give you that extra boost when you start your workouts. Um, then you have the Endure. Uh, the Endure is more of like the sustaining of your workout while you're working out. You want to get, you know, some carbs. Yeah, a little bit of carbs, a little bit of stuff to like, you know, you're in the grind in that middle of the workout. You need something just to put you over the edge. You know, the Endure is probably the best for you. And then they have a recovery drink, which is the, you know, end of workout or, uh, you know, end of a run, rock, whatever you're doing out there. And uh, just more of a... Just uh, more electrolytes, more B vitamins in there, and also it's about 25 milligrams of caffeine, so it's not going to make you shaky. Or Those are my favorite. Oh, those are my favorite. Recovery. I drink those favorite. all day. Is that bad? <laughs> I'll show. I'll throw down probably one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Blood orange is my favorite. Cherry limeade. They have a variety of flavors. Berry lemonade. They have... Uh, Killcliff.com. Killcliff.com. And then you can get those, actually. Yep. And we have a code, a coupon code for that if you want to order some. It's uh, Survival15. So it saves you 15%. Not a lot of companies are giving you 15% savings uh, out there. So if you want to check it out, you know, go to killcliff.com uh, and put in our coupon code, Survival15, and, and save. And also, also one good thing about Killcliff is that they uh, are all about the Navy SEAL Foundation, which helps, you know, service members, their families, for any situation they come to, it's you know it's hard out there when you're deployed. So they're there for the families and for the service members. If anything should go wrong, thanks, Kilcliff. 
All right, so what do you think of carrying a carbine in a backpack for self-defense? Is it practical or smart? I would say no. I would say no. I mean, I just don't, I don't, I don't think that carrying an AR-15 platform in a bag is going to set you up for success. I do think that setting a, having an AR-15 in your vehicle could set you up for success. I mean, there's no reason. Look, we got a Triarch system. Um, I have a Triarch that has the collapsible buttstock, which is made by... The Law Folder? Is that yeah, what it's called? Law Tactical. Yep. Um, that folds and at a, with a 10.5-inch barrel because it's an AR-15 pistol. I could stick that under my seat. Yep. And there's no reason not to have that in your rig. Like, why not? Mm-hmm. So have that in your rig. Have it in a truck vault or a Boss Strongbox locked up, ready to go, and just... Uh, I was going to say fire and forget. Don't fire <laughs> the gun. But keep it inside the vehicle, and there you got it. On your mobility mobility platform, no matter where you're at, yeah, it's maybe you're at work, but at your rig, on your person, you have your pistol, but at your rig, you have the upgrade of that situation. So, yeah. You recently had a person in a wheelchair in one of your classes. What changes were made for her? So, so far, uh, this isn't really tactical-oriented, um, but so far... We have locked down a dog, a golden retriever puppy, and we're just trying to find a trainer. So if you guys know any trainers, please hit a, hit us up. You could DM me on my personal Instagram. It's mike.a.glover, mike.a.glover, or email us at info at philcraftsurvival.com. What's some good tips for training a three-man team to do room clearing drills? I would say with a three-man team, man, it's, it's best to get training, get formal training, courses of action, mm-hmm. CAG works, Philcraft Survival, uh, Haley Strategic, um, Ronin Tactics. There's a whole bunch of companies that are out there that are doing good stuff. Uh, Bear Solutions, um, Achilles Tactical. There's a whole bunch of companies that are doing good stuff. Train, train, and train. Um, when to run chest rigs versus plate carriers along with backpacks versus rucks in an apocalyptic event. Look, I keep chest rigs around. I have chest rigs uh, in my house. That's kitted out with a full basic load. Um, chest rigs are good, obviously, for grabbing and going. Um, at the same time, plate carriers are good for overt operations, but it's not necessarily a consideration for me in the way that I operate, meaning I'm not doing deliberate offensive operations, so I don't need a plate carrier. I'm trying to avoid confrontation. So if I have one, I have it around, it's not on the forefront of my contingency plans. And then why don't you explain uh, backpacks versus rucks? So a backpack is more of like a it's not it doesn't have like a, a rigid frame in it a backpack's more of a soft uh bag it's you know it's not rigid it doesn't have a, 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 a alice pack frame or it's any kind load, of it's not load carry yeah it's not right? load carryable. you're not going to put like 45 pounds in a, in a in a backpack and think you're going to be okay like in and get over distance and be comfortable that's going to like slow you down but with a uh, rucksack it has a frame on it it's designed for heavy loads 120 pounds so you can put all your stuff in there and just make sure you pack it right. If you're doing a rucksack, we had some uh, stuff. You can just Google it, but there's a, a right way to pack a ruck and a wrong way to pack a ruck. So if you have a heavy, heavy equipment, use a rucksack. If you just have, you know, gym stuff or just little supplies, use a backpack. Yeah, it's important to delineate between the two, right? Because yeah, backpacks for those like everyday situations. Like a Jan sport, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love the Jan sport. <laughs> uh, best book for tactical planning methods and strategies I would say uh, it's uh, Black Rifle, Green Eyes, Black Rifle by Kyle Lamb. That's one of my favorites. Uh, I learned by reading that book as a special operations guy. Um, best trigger for an AT- AR-15 platform. What do you think? What do we have in the... Tr- uh, SSE, the uh, yeah. Geisley. 
That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. So dual. Look, you never want to go single action. Um, this is for Joe. You never want to go single action, meaning you don't want to just know when you're touching the trigger, it's going off. I like a dual stage, a two stage that allows you to prep. So it's good for uh, follow through and it's good for multiple strings of fire. Um, so I recommend that opinions on training in crowd Maga for self-defense. It's applicable. We have two friends, Daryl and Carissa who were black belts in crowd Maga. And I, I've talked to them a little bit and we might be even offering it at our dojo. Cause it's uh it's really relevant pros and cons of running an AR pistol with a law folder. Oh, we kind of addressed that, right? What is your recommendation for a good flat range gun belt, George? You run a Condor, so you got this. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. <laughs> listen, I, I just it, it was a. I saw it. I bought it. I wasn't, you know, thinking right. But um, what do you, you have? A Viking tactical one? Look, I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the the larger Viking tactical belt, which was made um, by Kyle Lamb. But also, what's good about that belt is we used it in the SIF. It was called a Brokos belt at one time. There's variations of it. I like the wide ones that I run, the old-style VTAC belt, because the wide ones allow you to put more kit on it. If it's an overt belt for me and I'm using it on a range, I want something that has my med, uh, two mag, two pistol, two M4, um, my knife, and my holster. And then I even have a Gerber. That's a SOP for my, for my belt setup. In fact, I'm going to do a video tomorrow on belt setup. Let's do that. Um, I have a side... Sidecar style holster and can't seem to find a good place for a tourniquet. What have you not seen? I mean, yeah, fieldcrossrival.com. We have inside the waistband tourniquet holsters uh, that are. I, have, I was wearing one yesterday all day and I'm pretty, uh, you know, I got a little bit of weight on me right now and uh, it was comfortable. I didn't even feel it in there just when I sat down, but that was about it. Um, somebody said why does why the disapproval of Dom Rosso has going on fits with positive mindset it's so funny to me it's like I put on my page on the story it says hashtag crush everything that's mm -hmm. dumb you need to come up with clearing uh, like a clear and concise plan and then execute look I don't even know Dom Rosso like number one I don't know Dom Rosso he's not a friend I he's not an enemy him, to be honest with you. He, he, I, I rarely I've heard about him in a couple instances he's nobody that I know personally. So I don't have a problem with Dom Rosso. In fact, I never even knew that he said that. But the bottom line is, I don't fucking care. Like, I don't care what other people are doing. I just don't have time. I'm not analyzing mm. other people's behaviors to correct yours. What I'm saying is that hashtag, if you Google the hashtag, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. That hashtag is synonymous with every other hashtag that's like, crush everything. Uh, kick all the ass. Kick all the ass. Make today your bitch. Like there's this idea that somehow uh, by being blunt, right, w which is like punching somebody in the face, you're going to get something accomplished. Like mm -hmm. that's that's the that's the positive mindset. It, but it's not positive mindset. Yeah. To me, positive mindset is the process of devising a plan, coming up with courses of action and then executing that plan. When you do that, right, and you understand that's the process, then you understand that all these things that you want to accomplish aren't as easy as you walk into a gym and you crush everything. You just pick up every weight and you fucking lift it. Because that's what a lot of people do. They go to a range and they just shoot the fuck out of the target. Crush everything. That's not how this works. In fact, I'm talking from a, uh, a career field um, where the deliberate processes that you implement and execute 
mean the difference between mission success and failure. So we don't go into the gym and crush everything. We sit down, we hash out a plan, we're calculated in that deliberate decision process. So if you're offended by it, fuck it, I don't care, man. It's just one of those things. I don't even give a shit. The mother of them all, what distance to sight in a rifle and why? Well, going back to that book recommendation of black, a green eyes black rifle, I recommend a 50 meter repeat zero of 200 meter. Mm -hmm. That is going to set you up for success. Um, That is going to give you the best variation at close proximity at a few hundred meters that's going to allow you with the least amount of deviation. Um, Proper methods of stowing a carbine in or handgun on a vehicle for day-to-day life. Man, I use the center console. A lot of times... I put it underneath my seat because bad guys are less likely to look under the seat than they are the center console. Um, I even put them underneath my mats. Like if I'm going and I'm doing stuff, I stick them underneath the mats and I just do my thing and um, I get back to the vehicle and it's on It's on there. Um, how to keep a clear mindset when SHTF or how to push yourself on a run or workout. Uh, I think th- to keep a clear mindset, you have to focus on... Um, staying conscious. My, one of my favorite things to do is breathe. I mean, when you're breathing, you're not inside your head. You're consciously aware, and you're optimizing your oxygen intake. I mean, that's that's an easy one. Um, being presented with a man with two 11-inch blades with no egress. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, look, I would use any obstacle, um, uh, any kind of defense mechanism I have, a magazine, a you know, computer, anything I have at my disposal is going to offer some kind of... Because look, if you counter one attack by by shielding or blocking uh, one strike, you know the other strike's coming. And if you could take control of one of, the, one of the hands by shielding or blocking it, then you have the leverage to be able to devastate that person and get within close proximity. The key in that situation is not allow yourself to be in a situation where you are... Um, you don't want to be in a situation where you're too far away from them, where they could lunge into you and stab you and potentially kill you. You have to set yourself up for success. And the best way to do so is closing the distance and mitigating the chance of them swinging that knife and then stabbing you. Are we all easy to kill if we someone really want us to... De- uh, I don't know. Uh, tips for firing out of a vehicle. Uh, here, I'll give you a couple tips. One of the tips is when you're firing from the inside out, the bullet, when it hits the glass for the first time, meaning there's not multiple shots in one place, is going to take the perpendicular route of the glass. So if you're shooting from inside out, it's going to be high. The round is going to deflect high. If you're shooting from outside in, the bullet is going to come in and enter low. Um, And that's just a general rule of thumb. Um, also a pillars, which is the pillar that's right in front of you are, are made to reinforce your, uh, position in the driver and passenger seat to be a zone that doesn't crumple. So your, your a pillar is reinforced. That doesn't mean that it's bulletproof because all it is, is reinforced steel. Um, are ballistic shields practical in a gunfight? Absolutely. You know, I've worked with a French GIGN before, and one of the things I really like about the French is that their use of uh, the shields. 
In fact, there's a counter-terrorist operation that was conducted in France uh, when some jihadists decided to get crazy, and they actually used a shield to make injur- uh, entry to fight and uh, to, to save their, uh, their lives and save the hostages' life. And they took a lot of shots on that, on that, uh, that shield. And so that's a, that's a, a good, good use of the shield. Um, I've, I've seen it in special operations being used to extract bad guys that potentially have bombs on them because, uh, you know, you, it's a, acting as a blast shield from debris um, and, and shrapnel. So, yeah, definitely, definitely um, advantageous. Um, so here we go. It, I'm going to answer two more and we're done. Um, when is the reverse C-clamp a beneficial firing grip? I'm assuming you mean C-clamp. I don't call it reverse. Um Unless you mean reverse, I don't know what that means. But if 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 you use a C clamp, the one of the benefits is you're reducing muzzle flip, meaning the muzzle f- flipping up, and uh, and the felt recoil that you feel from that. The, a gun does two things: it muzzle flips and it recoils. You're not going to see a lot of recoil in an AR-15 because of the way the bolt carrier group goes back into the the tube uh, with the buffer and the buffer tube. Um, or I'm sorry, the buffer spring, you're not going to see a lot of recoil on that. You're going to see it basically just go down. And a C-clamp sets you up by retaining control of the front end. A way to prove that is lay your hand flat and shoot flat off your hand versus um, versus actually taking uh, the C-clamp and pushing down with your thumb and your forefinger and putting holding pressure. So... Um, also, a C-clamp's good when the elbow is in line with the, uh, or parallel with the gun, you could drive and push and pull the gun from target to target as opposed to swinging it, and that's really critical in a, in a uh, situation as well. In addition to that, having po- two points of contact at the pistol grip and the, for- the front of the gun in a C-clamp, you could retain control and drive the gun much faster, meaning if you're at low ready or high port and you're coming down and snapping the gun in position, with two points of contact on the gun, you could do so a lot faster. Um, last question is um, um, cover crush everything and the reasoning behind why it's a bad idea. People need to hear it. Look, he, Cold Steel Knives actually asked that, um, and it, that question makes sense how it's outlined. Let me, let me explain this again. When, when you, you think that there's a solution to crush or destroy or do something like, you know, get after it, crush everything. I get it. I get the sentiment, right? I'm not, I'm not saying I don't understand the sentiment. What I mean is if you go into the gym and you don't have a plan and you don't have an understanding of the process to get to your end state or objective, then you haven't done the homework and you think that bl- brunt, brunt, blunt force trauma is the solution when it's not. Um, in fact, working harder isn't always as advantageous as working smarter. So it's not an advantage in a lot of situations, even tactically. I've seen guys think that smashing, blowing up, and kicking in front doors, for example, is the way to do it. When, if you've ever fought Al-Qaeda, which I have in the prime of the war, we were getting shot in the face. You know, the first two guys, first three guys were becoming casualties of every raid that we did. And so we started doing call-outs because we weren't just going to crush everything. And so I think it's, it sets a, bre- uh, a, a bad precedence for, 
for establishing the right mindset. Because the mindset isn't you just run into shit and you just crush it. You, that's the wrong approach. Now, if you have the right orientation, the right plan, the right means to execute, to reach your end goal, and then you're crushing that, that goal or objective, then I get it. And, and listen to me. I understand the sentiment. Let's don't get wrapped around the fucking axle on this. I get it. Um, uh, last question, ballistic question. Safety on or off on a rifle when breaching a house for a warrant? Well, it depends. If it's a high-risk warrant and there's an armed person in there, I'm going to have it on fire. I'm not going to lie. Look, if I'm checking behind doors or behind closets where I think there's a bad guy hiding in it, I had... I had my uh, weapon on fire and my my finger uh, right in front of the trigger because if that bad guy was there, I wanted the extra millisecond, the extra tenth of a second to shoot them before they shot me. And if you've operated in special operations where for the most part, a lot of the guys are are, uh, highly trained and specialized, then you can get away with that. Now, would I recommend that for an institution, for officers who are coming, uh, just general officers on their day-to-day? No. SWAT teams, yes, uh, who do it every day. Full-time SWAT teams, I get it. But definitely not for just any uh, any patrolman. Uh, last question, do you like turtles? The answer to that is always yes. Hey, guys, thank you for tuning in to the uh, Tactical Review Podcast. My favorite thing about this podcast is communicating about tactics, techniques, and procedures that potentially, uh, you know, taking away the lessons learned that could help save somebody's life. I get it. You know, I, I'm going to be looked at as an armchair quarterback. So be it. I do have the experience and I do have the people around me who have the experience. I'm willing to leverage that experience to help benefit. We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about engineering or science. We're talking about tactics. And that's what we do uh, at Fieldcraft Survival. If you have any questions or concerns, please leave your feedback. We have a a podcast on iTunes where you can leave feedback and you can leave comments. If you don't like something that we're doing, we're open to criticism. Uh, but just don't say we don't like you because um, you you tell it how it is because somebody has to. If 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 nobody in the in the institution is going to, then somebody in reality on that's a tactical guy on the ground has to. I'm looking forward to doing more of these these podcasts because in the future we're going to have guests on here to review. Uh, the week's tactical situations and tactics, techniques, and procedures. That's just TTPs. And looking forward to the uh, next episode of this. Hey, guys, I love you guys. Thanks for all the support. If you guys support us and you found value in this, at Philcraft on Venmo, you guys can support us any way you see fit. Uh, thanks to Black Rifle Coffee Company, Triarch Systems, uh, Uncana, uh, all the guys at Summit Jeep Company, and the guys down the road at Abide Armory, we love all you guys and thank, appreciate you guys' support. Without you guys' support, uh, we wouldn't be able to do these podcasts. Until next time, stay alert. Stay alive. Stay alive.